Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Ex-Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan is sentenced to 10 years in prison. Republicans move closer to impeaching Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. South Africa's ANC party suspends former President Jacob Zuma. Hamas considers a proposal for a hostage release deal. A watchdog says the global fight against corruption is losing steam. The Trump tax return leaker is sentenced to five years. Northern Ireland's DUP agrees to restore power sharing. Citibank is sued for allegedly failing to protect customers from scammers. UPS says it will cut 12,000 jobs this year. And a Neuralink chip is implanted in a human brain for the first time. In Pakistan, Imran Khan is sentenced to 10 years in prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Diplomat, The Intercept and The Guardian. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan and his aide, former Foreign Minister Shah Mahmood Qureshi, were both sentenced to 10 years in prison on Tuesday, related to allegations of disclosing state secrets. The ruling came a day after the High Court in Pakistan suspended the conviction and three-year prison sentence of Khan for another alleged crime, that being his alleged failure to declare proceeds from gifts while in office. Monday's judgment ordered Khan's release from prison, though that has been undone by the latest state secrets case. The latest case traces its way back to April 2022, shortly after Khan lost a confidence vote and was removed from power. He alleged that the U.S. had orchestrated his downfall, proceeding to wave a letter at a campaign event he said proved his assertions. The following year, The Intercept reported on a communication cable regarding a meeting between two U.S. State Department officials and Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. It outlined how the U.S. voiced displeasure over Khan's neutral stance on the Ukraine war. They reportedly said that if a no-confidence vote against Khan succeeded, all will be forgiven in Washington. But if not, it will be tough going ahead. While Khan has repeatedly asserted he had no involvement in the release of the document, the court found him guilty of violating the country's Official Secrets Act by misusing the confidential cable. After what has been described as highly unusual proceedings held in a prison rather than a courtroom, including stipulations that witnesses could not be cross-examined, lawyers for Khan criticized the verdict and said they would bring it to the Court of Appeals. Meanwhile, Khan and his team maintain that this was a political prosecution aimed at keeping him out of next week's elections. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa just laid out the facts for us. And now our narrative spins begin with Narrative A from the News International. While corruption surged under Khan, Pakistan's place in related indexes has been steadily improving since Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif took power. There's still work to do but these developments demonstrate why Sharif is the right leader. And here's Narrative B from Dawn. The circumstances under which the verdict was reached were highly unusual, raising legitimate questions about whether Khan received a fair trial and whether any of his other rights were violated. These developments threatened the independence of Pakistan's judiciary, bringing the country closer to totalitarianism. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community, and it says there's a 21% chance of a civil war in Pakistan before 2036. 
Scott, I know it's not a great form of government, but totalitarianism is a really fun word to say. Be a good band name. You know, totalitarianism is opening for Metallica Ooh, on, the, on yes, the main stage. It would definitely be metal. Yeah. Yeah. The House moves forward with the Mayorkas impeachment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Daily Caller, Daily Mail, CNN, and NPR Online News. The Homeland Security Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives on Tuesday began a day-long hearing on two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The Republican-led committee is attempting to impeach Mayorkas over his alleged willful and systemic refusal to enforce immigration laws at the U.S. southern border with Mexico. Representative Mark Green, Republican of Texas, the committee chairman, has claimed that Mayorkas's actions have left the committee with a clear, compelling, and irrefutable case for impeachment. Only if the committee approves the articles will the House's entire chamber vote on the matter. If approved by the House, the articles would then be transferred for a trial in the Democratic-controlled Senate, where it would take a two-thirds vote to remove Mayorkas from his position. This comes after the committee released draft articles on Sunday of impeachment against Mayorkas in response to testimony it heard from Republican attorneys general, legal witnesses, mothers who've lost children to fentanyl, as well as an MS-13 gang member over the course of previous hearings. At the same time, House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Texas, has gone on record commenting that bipartisan legislation in the Senate to address border security and funding for Ukraine and Israel will be dead on arrival if it makes it to the House. Former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, has also expressed his opposition to the reported Senate deal. Thank you, Scott. We'll start these spins with a Democratic narrative from The New York Times. The impeachment attempt is merely a political stunt by Republicans who did not even allow Mayorkas to testify in his own defense. House Republicans could do more to address the issues at the border, but instead want the problems to linger, hoping a chaotic border will work in their favor come this November's elections. And the Republican narrative from Fox News. The only political games being played here are by Democrats who continue to support a Homeland Security secretary who is failing to enforce U.S. immigration law. By failing to join Republicans in this impeachment, Democrats will be actively complicit with the cartels in undermining U.S. security. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50 percent chance that the rate of immigration enforcement in the U.S. in 2024, as a percentage of removals to encounters, will be at least 7.7 percent. In South Africa, the ANC suspends former President Jacob Zuma. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Daily Maverick, Atlas News, RFI, AFP News, and The Citizen. South Africa's ruling African National Congress, or ANC, has suspended the membership of former President Jacob Zuma after he announced he would campaign for another party in the upcoming general election. The party's secretary-general, Fikila Mbalula, announced on Monday. He claimed that Zuma has actively compromised the integrity of the party by spearheading a campaign to oust the ANC from power, adding that this decision was taken unanimously on Sunday evening and ratified by the National Executive Committee on Monday morning. This comes as the 81-year-old Zuma, who served as president from 2009 to 2018, announced in December 
that he would support the newly founded Umkanto Wesizwa, or MK Party, named after the former paramilitary wing of the ANC. According to Umbalula, the new party deliberately seeks to exploit the history of the armed resistance against the apartheid regime to promote an alleged counter-revolutionary agenda. He further announced legal steps to deregister the MK and recapture the name. President Cyril Ramaphosa told state-run SABC broadcaster that the NEC had made this decision because supporting another party conflicts with the ANC membership. Currently facing graft allegations and banned from running for elected office, Zuma last month denounced Ramaphosa's government as sellouts and apartheid collaborators. Amid a struggling economy, this year's general election is expected to be the most contested in democratic South Africa. Polls suggest that the ANC, which has been in power since 1994, risks dropping below 50 percent for the first time and being forced to form a coalition to remain in power. Thanks, Melissa, for that update. Narrative A comes from the conversation. Zuma's suspension follows the ANC constitution and was a long overdue step. It was the ANC itself that created the Zuma problem by helping him and his kleptocratic system to power and then shielding him from being held accountable for corruption charges. His suspension is a first step toward fulfilling the promise to renew the party to lead South Africa out of crisis. The decision restores at least some credibility to the party that led South Africa out of apartheid and could bolster its position ahead of the upcoming general elections. And here's Narrative B from Politics Web. The reason for the emergence of the MK party is the ANC itself whose corrupt and incompetent government has plunged South Africa into a deep economic crisis. The suspension of Zuma is further proof that Ramaphosa's party has finally abandoned its old anti-apartheid-era ideals and has become a proxy of white monopoly capital. MK's momentum is based on the awareness that there can never be reconciliation and freedom without socioeconomic equality and justice. South Africa needs political renewal, and MK will play its part in achieving this. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the ANC will receive more than 50% of the vote in the 2024 South African general election. Hamas to consider proposal for a hostage release deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Reuters, The Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, and the Associated Press. Hamas political leader Ismail Haniyeh announced on Tuesday that the group would consider a proposal arranged by Egypt, Qatar, the U.S., and Israel on Sunday during talks in Paris to exchange Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners and potentially pause the fighting for weeks, saying that the group remains committed to ending the war and securing the withdrawal of Israeli forces. However, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu repeated on Tuesday that the war would not end until Hamas is eliminated, stating that Israel wouldn't withdraw its troops from Gaza or free thousands of Palestinian prisoners. As intense fighting in and around Khan Yunis in the south of the Strip continues, Israeli Defense Minister Yov Gallant said on Tuesday that Israeli forces will control Gaza after the war's end pointing to Israel's ability to readily carry out raids in the West Bank, even though it doesn't control the area in a civilian sense. Meanwhile, the Guardian, citing aid officials, Gaza residents, analysts, and Israeli officials, 
claimed on Tuesday that Hamas operatives have regrouped in northern Gaza in an effort to reestablish the group's governance and launch attacks against Israeli forces, casting doubt on Israeli claims that it had neutralized Hamas's capabilities in the area. Generating controversy on Tuesday, Israeli forces killed three members of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad during an undercover raid into the Ib Sina Hospital in Jenin in the West Bank, disguised as medical staff and civilians. Israel said the men were hiding in the hospital. However, Hamas said that at least one of the men was at the hospital for treatment. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 26,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Scott, for that update. And we'll start the spins with a pro-Palestine narrative from the nation. Israel is losing its war in Gaza. After over three months and 26,000 dead Palestinians, Israel has failed to release hostages via military operations to kill Hamas's top leaders or to create conditions advantageous to ending this long, drawn-out conflict. Even then, if Israel did manage to achieve the majority of its war goals, it still would be left without a clear plan of action for the day after the war. Destroying a group like Hamas is a fool's errand, and Netanyahu has dug Israel into a hole that it will have a tough time climbing out of. Israel should accept a comprehensive ceasefire. And the Daily Beast brings us the pro-Israel narrative. Though, of course, this war has not been easy, Israel has made steady progress in Gaza, first neutralizing Gaza City before moving on to other population centers like Khan Yunis. Israel has substantially degraded Hamas's military capabilities and leadership, and even partially degraded elite Hezbollah units stationed along Israel's northern border. Indeed, as Israel's enemies should recognize, Israel's raw military power should not even be up for debate and the country will fight and negotiate as it sees fit to achieve its goals. A new report finds global corruption is at an uptick due to weakening justice systems. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Transparency, Euronews, The Guardian, and The Associated Press. Global corruption watchdog Transparency International released its annual Corruption Perceptions Index, or CPI, for 2023 on Tuesday. The report, which shows 23 countries falling to their worst-ever rating, claimed that the fight against government corruption is losing steam due to weakening justice systems that reduce the accountability of public officials. The index measures 180 countries on a scale of 0 to 100, with 100 being the least corrupt. T.I. said that in 2023, Denmark was the least corrupt country in the world, with an unchanged score of 90. It was followed by Finland, 87, New Zealand, 85, Norway, 84, and Singapore, 83, to round off the top five. The three lowest-ranked countries in Western Europe and the EU were Hungary, 42, Romania, 46, and Bulgaria, 45. Meanwhile, among some of the high-ranking countries, Austria, 71, Luxembourg, 78, Sweden, 82, and the UK, 71, all declined significantly. Poland, 54, has seen a seven-point decline over the past decade, with Greece dropping to an all-time low of 49. 
The U.K., which dropped from the 18th rank in 2022 to a joint 20th last year, has seen its score decrease by two points since 2022 and nine points since 2018, making it the worst five-year decline of any Western European country. TI blamed the UK's 2023 drop in part on its scandal around awarding personal protective equipment during the pandemic. The US's score of 69 was unchanged, placing it in 24th place. Meanwhile, on the lower end, Somalia has had the weakest score of 11, with South Sudan, Syria, and Venezuela each with 13. TI said the Asia Pacific region saw little to no meaningful progress. Latin American and the Caribbean countries are dealing with opacity and undue influence on their justice systems, and Arab nations hit an all-time low average of 34. With a global average score of 43 for the 12th consecutive year, over 66% of countries had a score below 50. There were also only eight countries that saw their scores improve, including Vietnam, Ireland, South Korea, and the Maldives. Thanks, Melissa, for those alarming facts. Radio Free Europe brings us Narrative A. As authoritarianism grows around the world, anti-corruption mechanisms are dwindling. This is shown especially in Central Asia, a canary in the global corruption coal mine whose democracy has been on the decline, and police, prosecutors, and courts are prevented from holding the powerful to account. If anti-corruption mechanisms are not put in place, this culture of impunity for the powerful will only worsen. And Narrative B comes from Verfassung's blog. A report of newfound corruption in Europe should come as no surprise. Since the 1990s, the EU has endured corrupt election supervision systems and pay-for-play sanctions policies, among other scandals. To say Europe and Western powers have only recently become corrupt is an absolute understatement. All too often, actors from these countries are the ones facilitating corruption in the global south. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 30% chance that the United States drops below a 7 in the Democracy Index by 2040. Trump's tax return leaker is sentenced to five years in prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, CNN, NBC, The Associated Press, CBS, and The Huffington Post. Ex-IRS contractor Charles Edward Littlejohn has been sentenced to five years in prison for leaking former President Donald Trump's tax records to news outlets. The 38-year-old, who had pleaded guilty to unauthorized disclosure of tax returns last October, would also spend three years under supervised release and pay a $5,000 fine. In Monday's ruling, federal judge Anna Reyes... In Monday's ruling, Federal District Judge Anna Reyes stated that Little John's unauthorized disclosure of tax returns to the press was an attack on our constitutional democracy. Little John maintained in court that he leaked the information out of a sincere, misguided belief, reflecting and conceding that his actions undermined the fragile faith in the U.S. government. However, prosecutors had claimed that Little John had weaponized his position and access to tax information to further his own agenda and politics. Following the leak, the New York Times reported that Trump paid only $750 in federal income taxes in 2020 and 2021, and none in 10 of the previous 15 years. Thank you, Scott. Here are the spins, starting with an anti-Trump narrative from The Guardian. Charles Edward Littlejohn, 
did an obvious public service by leaking Donald Trump's tax records. With these out in the public domain, Americans remain aware of the true character of the man sitting in the world's most powerful position. It showed people how bogus his claims were and pricked the aura of his business success. And Fox News follows with the pro-Trump narrative. The timing of the first publication of Trump's tax records right ahead of the presidential debate in 2020 was enough to understand this was a hit job. The former president has openly admitted that he availed of legitimate government tax benefits to reduce his dues like any other U.S. citizen. Little John must be held accountable for his weaponization of authority. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 32% chance that over 40% of U.S. tax filings will be filed using paid tax preparers in 2027. Northern Ireland's DUP agrees to restore power sharing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the DUP. The UK government, shout out UK and BBC News. After nearly two years without devolved governance, Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, leader Sir Geoffrey Donaldson on Monday revealed that an agreement has been reached to restore Northern Ireland's assembly at Stormont. In a statement on Monday evening, Donaldson commented that following binding commitments between the DUP and the UK government concerning legislative changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol, the party would allow the restoration of the locally elected institutions for the first time since February 2022. While stating that full details of new measures were to be released in due course, the DUP leader continued that new agreements would restore Northern Ireland within the UK internal market, removing checks for good moving within the UK, as well as ending Northern Ireland automatically following future EU laws. Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris has stated that the agreement is a significant step while confirming that the UK government would stick to the binding commitments made during negotiations concerning the Windsor framework. Northern Ireland's model of consociationalism governance requires the sharing of power between unionists and nationalists within Stormont's executive. Following the DUP's withdrawal in February 2022, the party saw itself replaced by nationalist Sinn Féin as the region's largest party three months later. The UK and EU agreed to the Northern Ireland Protocol following Brexit, and it took effect in January 2021, necessitating checks on goods between Britain and Northern Ireland, which were intended to ultimately reach the Republic of Ireland. An EU member. Following DUP protests, the Windsor framework was implemented in October 2023, separating green lane goods remaining in Northern Ireland from red lane goods intended to enter the Republic of Ireland. Thanks, Melissa. Fact Check NI brings us Narrative A. Polling data shows that regardless of ideology, restoring the integrity of Storma and addressing the influx of public sector crises continues to be the central priority of Northern Ireland. The people of Northern Ireland are strongly opposed to the political games that have left them leaderless for nearly two years. And despite dissatisfaction over the Windsor framework, opinion is clear that no point of policy contention should supersede Northern Ireland's democratic mandate and the protection of the region's right to self-determination. And here's Narrative B from the Belfast Newsletter. With the details of the DUP's agreement yet to be unveiled, there's little hope that two years of protests have resulted in the legislative amendments that unionists continue to demand. 
The DUP has likely failed to enact the changes necessary for Northern Ireland's future, but has conceded defeat. Northern Ireland is once again destined to enter a fragile, power-sharing executive, which history shows us is inevitably and inherently unsustainable. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 33% chance that Northern Ireland will hold a reunification referendum before 2030. New York sues Citibank for allegedly not protecting customers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the New York State Attorney General, CNBC, CNN, and the New York Post. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced Tuesday she's suing Citibank for allegedly failing to protect customer funds from online fraudsters and for not reimbursing victims who had thousands stolen from their accounts. James filed the lawsuit at the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. It states that New York customers lost millions of dollars due to city's weak security and anti-fraud measures, with some people losing their entire life savings. In a statement, James' office said City fails to respond to fraudulent activity appropriately and quickly noting that the bank's systems didn't adequately respond to red flags, including scammers who used unrecognized devices, accessed accounts from different locations, and changed account usernames and passwords. The suit also claims Citi left customers who reported potential fraud on long hold lines and didn't sufficiently protect accounts until customers visited a local branch. City representatives also allegedly failed to take necessary steps to restore customer funds as promised and falsely told customers to execute special affidavits in person to detail the scams that stole their money. The lawsuit calls for City to reimburse victims under the Electronic Fund Transfer Act. Previously, Citibank's parent company, Citigroup, came under regulatory scrutiny over risk management concerns. And in 2020, it was fined $400 million in order to improve its risk management systems. James is requesting Citi relinquish any profit gained from instances of fraud, pay a $5,000 fine for each violation, and appoint a third-party monitor to identify all customers who were victims. A Citi spokesperson said the bank had worked to improve its security and that banks are not required to make clients whole when those clients follow criminals' instructions. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins with the narrative A from New Rochelle. All banks must be held responsible when they don't protect their customers from scammers and, in some instances, ignore fraud. In this case, Citibank thinks a basic disclaimer against scams is enough to remove any liability for stolen customer funds, but that's not true. Security measures must be improved, and customers must be reimbursed when they're victimized. And Narrative B comes from Consumer.org of New Zealand. It's easy to just blame the banks in situations like this, but there are many factors at play. First and foremost, banks shouldn't be held liable in instances of customer negligence. Sometimes banks should reimburse customers, but it's also incumbent on customers to be more careful because there are always going to be scammers trying to make a quick buck. Scott, I had a scammer... Last year, I was trying to sell a baby carrier. one of those, like, you put it on your shoulders and the kid sits on your shoulders and straps mm. in. And it's supposed to yeah. be really, it looked like it was going to be really cool and it was awful. Um, so anyway, <laughs> paid too much and tried to sell it on Facebook Marketplace. Got a buyer right away and was like, oh, great, great. Cool. The person says, uh, you know, I'm out of town, but my wife's there and she could be there in an hour. I'm like, okay, great. Well, 
come on over. If you want to do this, I'll give you my address. And they're like, okay, but first, I just need to make sure this is legit. I'm going to text you a a code, right? I'm going to text you a code and then just give me that code. I was like, uh, that doesn't seem right. And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Just give me the code. And and they sent me a code and it was like my Google. It was like my Google, like reset your Google password. And I was like, oh, (laughs) hi. And then the person started getting more and more uh, aggressive in the text frame of like, hurry, hurry and give me, just give me that. I was like, no, sorry, bye. But man, that was the, that was the last place I expected to be scammed was trying to sell something. I like how they put you on your back foot by saying, I need to make sure you're legit. Right. I'm not sure. What about you? Are you legit? Like that, you know, that's that's pretty smart. But that's where they threw me off because I was like, you are not talking like a Pacific Northwesterner. That person would be like, hey, if it's okay with you and it's really not imposing, I'm so sorry, but can I come to your house to pick it up? That would have been a Seattleite, a real person. right? And and that's how I do. Like, eh, these people ain't from around here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did you end up, you just stopped communicating with the person? How did it end? This doesn't seem legit to me. Like, this is starting to sound scammy. Sorry. And then they just disappeared. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I always feel like a fool, though. Even if I'm led for a little while, I think. God, I usually figure it out before it's, you know, too late. But (laughs) well, if it makes you feel any better, that person's more annoyed than you are that they wasted that time on you. UPS will lay off 12,000 employees. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, The Wall Street Journal, Reuters, The Washington Post and The New York Post. Delivery company UPS announced Tuesday that it will lay off 12,000 of its roughly 500,000 workers this year. This comes after the Teamsters Union, which represents around 340,000 UPS workers in the U.S., approved a new contract for its members in August that included an average annual pay plus benefits for drivers of $170,000, as as well as more full-time jobs and air conditioning and new trucks. The job cuts are expected to impact contract workers and management positions, of which UPS currently has a total of 85,000. As the company expects small package volumes to increase by less than 1% this year, Chief Executive Carol Tomei said the layoffs are aimed at shifting the company toward utilizing artificial intelligence and other technologies. As UPS projects its revenue this year to be between $92 billion and $94.5 billion, which is below the average target of $95.57 billion, Tomei said the layoffs are part of an effort to reduce costs in 2024 by $1 billion. UPS revenue dropped to $24.9 billion in the fourth quarter of 2023, which was a 7.8% decline from the same period a year before. While the company's projected 2024 revenue is lower than analysts' expectations, the 92 to $94.5 billion range would be up 1% to 3.8% growth. The 92 to $94.5 billion range would be up 1% to 3.8% growth. The company, whose stock price dropped by 8% following the announcement, also said that beginning in March, it will end its hybrid work schedule and require all employees to return to the office five days a week. Meanwhile, UPS's entire 2023 fiscal year saw revenue drop to $91 billion, down 9.3% from 2022. As the company has also considered selling its trucking logistics business, Coyote, it has cut back on air freight shipping, especially from China. 
The current conflict in the Suez Canal has also raised shipping costs by as much as 600 percent, though it's yet unclear whether air cargo will pick back up. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. The Wall Street Journal brings us Narrative A. UPS has typically not pursued mass layoffs as a fiscal policy, but with the costs of sorting and shipping packages going up, the company needs to consolidate sorting facilities and streamline its technical operations. To make shipping less expensive for customers, UPS will now have to take this freed-up cash and invest it heavily in technology. And here's Narrative B from Diginomica. Corporations have no idea what AI's potential is, let alone what the long-term consequences in the labor force will be. While executives have so far agreed with this optimistic predictions of tech companies, history shows us that they usually choose more profits when technological changes occur. People could very well end up working shoulder-to-shoulder with AI, but they could also end up jobless. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Amazon will deliver some products by drone by June of 2026. I still use the UPS store a lot. That's where I bring my, I don't spend any money there, yeah. but I bring my returns there all the time. You're, you bring your Amazon returns there. Yeah. I always <laughs> choose UPS store. There's one near my house and I yeah. feel like I can go there and someone will take it and put it where it's supposed to go and that'll be that. Um, yeah. And it's, it is pretty phenomenal, isn't it? You can go to a store that really is not involved with Amazon and just put right. it in a bag. You don't even talk to a person. And you just you say, well, good luck to you, package. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Yeah, seriously. And it always seems to work somehow, which is amazing. Yeah. I, um, I do wonder, like last time there's another box sitting here too on the scale or whatever. And I just sat it there and thought, gosh, if someone just decided to pick up the box and walk away, what would happen? I don't know. I feel like I'd never hear about it. I mean, I feel cool like me, so but... much of this economy or or social contract is just based on, all right, let's just assume I was someone who wanted to steal it. I don't know what's in there. Could be something valuable, could be whatever, but there's some value to stealing that box, whatever it could be. Sure. But then there, the whatever that is, is so outweighed by how embarrassed I would be to have someone even say like, hey, is that yours? And I'd be like, no, and then run out the door. Like it would be um, not, I, I couldn't do it. Like it would be mm. too mortifying. Yeah. Beyond any kind of prosecution or anything, and mainly the social mortification right, of would like, be oh, my issue. God. Yeah, the initial animal regret. Well, yes. if you had pulled it off, you would have gotten three balance pads, like PT balance mm. pads. So you're lost. <laughs> so I have so much clutter in my like I'm fighting the battle of clutter. Like yes. I would I would package up some of my stuff and leave it in a box in there and hope someone steals it. I'm the other, I'm looking at it the other way. Yeah. Like would someone please come to my house and steal some of my junk? (laughs) That's what I need. (laughs) That would be interesting. What if there was a, what if they, you could just put your garbage in a box and mail it? Would you be interested in that, in that service? Totally. And I'll say this as a shameless millennial. Why is it so hard to get rid of crap? It's, I mean, it's just definitely a mental or shame thing or something. It's or guilt. Basically, all the negative emotions are built into it somehow. Like, so is is the, is your issue that you will look at things, say I'm gonna get, I'm gonna clean out for goodwill, and you'll look at a thing and say ah, I might need it. Is that where you well, struggle? Okay. First and foremost, I'm a disgusting slob. That's the <laughs> first things. Okay, so we've gotten that out of the way. <laughs> Second. <so? laughs> Second, I think there's a 
I might need this or something. And then there's even a laziness factor like, okay, I'd be cool with getting rid of this. I just don't want to do what it takes to get rid of this. Be that throwing it in the garbage, donating it, whatever. Um, Because there's a friction there. If I could just, if I had a magic wand and something could just disappear, I think it would be a lot easier. So there's a few, there's- That's my biggest, the friction of getting it actually out the door to the right place. Because yeah. there are different places to sort your your used gear and your garbage. They all have to go to different places. But somehow that used gear part makes it so more garbage sticks around too. There's a weird stickiness to that. Yeah, because um, you're like, I'm going to take it all out at once. Right, because it should be like, okay, well, there's this these skis that I want to bring to REI. Like, okay, there's that. Right. But then- why is all that garbage over there still here? That should, that, 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 should, <laughs> that pile of papers should just be gone. Well, I'll take the garbage when I take the skis. Why would I make two trips? Ah, I also, see. I never leave Very my good. house, so that's a big problem. Just to quickly review my slobness, there is on my desk right now where I'm trying to work, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten drink containers of some sort. <laughs> now... One of them is a full unopened bottle of seltzer. Okay, so that's fine. Right. But still, it's a drink container. So, sure. okay, we have that one. Two empty bottles of the same seltzer. That So those shouldn't be here. Those are just empty. One Wawa coffee that I c- just finished that I drank before our thing. Um, one mug from a couple days ago that was, that was tea and is now empty. A... This must have been... Some kind of glass, which I don't remember what was in here. An empty Diet Dr. Pepper from probably a week ago. That's the best soda that you could have, though. Okay, so I'm cheating a little bit because I have a cup that I'm currently drinking that has ice in it and then a can that I'm pouring into that cup because it was not cold. But that's still two drink containers. And then I have, oh, wait, there's one behind my computer monitor. (laughs) It was hiding. Oh, wait, look under your desk. If I may offer you some unsolicited uh, and unneeded advice. Hit me with it. You know, most people at the end of the day would like bring up their couple of things to the kitchen. Sure. Right. And then now you have a lot of dishes to do. But your day never really ends. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And you're up late editing this podcast because your yep. um, dead weight over here doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. We need. I need. I need help. So I mean, <laughs> <you know. laughs> it's it's hard. There are man. There are some different challenges to 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 work. Think from of home. the mental drag these eleven containers have on me, even ever so small. <laughs> like, is that is that one percent of my mental sanity is being taken away by these cups? Even if that's what it is, one percent. All right, that's well, a big deal. Okay, a, a recycle and trash bin in your office. But then that bin is just in here. Well, then you could take one bin up at the end of the day or a yeah, week. Yeah, I guess so. You know. I well, I have a trash can in this office. It is full. Our final story, the first human is implanted with Elon Musk's Neuralink chip. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Elon Musk's X account, Fortune Magazine, The Wall Street Journal and The Times of Israel. Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk on Monday announced in a post on X, the Musk-owned social media platform formerly known as Twitter, that the first human is recovering well after receiving a brain implant from Neuralink, another one of his companies. Musk added initial results show promising neuron spike detection. 
In a follow-up post, Musk revealed that the chip is called telepathy, and it will enable control of electronic devices just by thinking. The first users will be those who have lost the use of their limbs. Musk's post suggested Neuralink could potentially decode higher-quality brain signals, but he didn't specify how many neurons the device was detecting or the company's safety and efficacy data. The company previously implanted the quarter-sized chip, which is inserted into the skull and attached to tiny threads that relay signals, into monkeys, who were then able to play the video game Pong. The human study, which was signed off on by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration last year, also aims to find whether the chip can help treat neurological disorders, including ALS and Parkinson's, as well as one day form a harmonious relationship between humans and artificial intelligence. Musk's announcement comes after Neuralink was recently fined by the Department of Transportation over its transporting of hazardous materials. In addition, four lawmakers last year called for a probe into whether Musk withheld information from investors about potential side effects in monkeys. In response, Musk said there had been no deaths and that they used terminal monkeys to minimize risk to healthy ones. Thanks for those fascinating facts, Scott. We'll begin with a narrative A from Business Today. Neuralink has overcome numerous obstacles that were thrown in its way, but this groundbreaking achievement proves the company's relentlessness was well worth it. With over $150 million in funding, Musk's startup has raced to the top of its industry. And narrative B comes from Business Insider. Neuralink has achieved something historic, but it can't get complacent. Already, Chinese scientists have developed their own brain chip, and Beijing has set a goal to develop its own Neuralink-like products by next year. Musk better be ready for stiff competition in this unique space. And here's a narrative C from the Anadolu Agency. Moving forward, the negative effects of this sort of technology can't be ignored. These brain chips could be as easily hacked as computers and phones, which could lead to human or AI-caused harm. Musk and others shouldn't race ahead too quickly. And appropriately, we have a nerd narrative for this story. There's a 50% chance that the FDA will grant Neuralink permission to sell and implant a brain-machine interface device into general consumers by August 2035, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I do worry. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, like, oh, you're going to get this Nintendo and that's the Nintendo you're going to have forever. It's going to be this. It's going to be the best forever. And then like, oh, there's a Super Nintendo. That's the new one. And that that's the one that's going to be here forever. And then it just kept going. So when I get a brain, am I going to be stuck with like the Atari 2600 of brain implants? (laughs) Like what's going to happen? Oh, it's going to be able to update the software itself. Be fine. I get, but but you could put as many, you know, whatever new game you want to put in that Atari, you're still stuck with an Atari. That's you know, like that's true. You know, I don't care. Eventually, the parts are going to fail. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, and I wonder about that. I'm sure they're going to figure that out, but. You know, you don't want to be playing uh, Atari in 2024. You know, you, you want that PS5. You could play Atari ironically in 2025. Oh, I don't want to have an ironic brain implant. I want... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, Come on, you'd be so I cool. Have a, uh, I have a steampunk brain implant. Yeah. I'm, I'm running off whatever. That's how cool I am. Your, your I, fixed, I went with a... Your uh... fixed gear brain implant. That's right. Yes, yes. What, Just because you, like petty... you like to tinker. Yes, it's a penny farthing of a brain implant that I'm, I'm using here. That, that's what I have. That's how cool. Yeah, I do look forward to the hipster brain implants. That'll be good. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, you can visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Thank you.